Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham and it is the home of common sense. But most of you know that. Uh, I just remind some people in case they're listening for the first time, because of course a lot of people are. Uh, a lot of people get drawn uh, like moths to a flame uh, coming in for the first time. Welcome to all of you. Welcome to everybody who's been listening for a long time. And welcome to all of you who only listen every now and again. Don't forget to tell people about the Independent Republic of Mike Graham because it is the only place to hear the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Now, this morning morning we're going to be talking about those idiots on the m25 those morons who have been at it again this morning insulate britain back on the warpath uh, and this time they were actually sitting down across the m25 bringing traffic going both ways to a complete standstill at least this time the police took swift and decisive action actually physically dragging them off the road and pulling them out of the way so well done to the police but i'm saying something now has to happen because this nonsense has reached crisis proportions and it is time we put a stop to these dangerous idiots once and for all. They say they don't have any choice but to block roads. They say they're doing it because they love everyone and care for the future of the planet. But they're causing chaos, acting like terrorists and fast becoming the most unpopular campaign in the history of demonstrating. The time has come, ladies and gentlemen, to crack down hard on these zombies, start fining them heavily, start confiscating their property and blockade them inside their own homes because if something isn't done so they are going to bring this country to a complete standstill. And after all, what kind of government do we have if they can't actually stop this from continually happening? It's all very well saying, oh, we're going to solve climate change. We're going to make sure the energy crisis is going to come to a complete standstill as well. But if you can't actually stop these idiots, these ageing hippies from sitting down on our roads... What is the actual point? We'll be seeking the counsel of barrister and commentator Bobby Friedman. 0344 499 1000. We'll see if we can frame some laws during the course of the next half an hour. We'll bring you also the latest from the energy crisis as well with Roger Helmer, former MEP. Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng promised yesterday that the lights would not go out in Britain. 
Always a tricky one, that. Uh, but ironically, there is now a shortage of CO2, and there's a chance we will have to import it from the USA under some kind of heavy subsidy. We'll be taking your calls this morning uh, because so many people have been royally robbed by the big energy companies, and I don't really fancy bailing anybody out with taxpayers' money, do you? Laura Dodsworth's going to be here as well. She's got plenty to say about the rolling out of the vaccination programme to our children. We'll be finding out exactly what is going on around the country in our schools as some of the big pharma companies are now saying they've run successful trials with children children as young as five. Really? What on earth is going on? 03444991000. And we'll be investigating why so many doctors are now asking for proper statistics on just how many operations have been cancelled as a result of the COVID obsession. The government has admitted that no recent estimate is available, and so it's clearly a massive problem. So tell us what's going on in your neck of the woods. Kevin O'Sullivan is here ahead of his big show tonight, and we'll be going live to Washington, D.C. with White House correspondent Ksenia pavlovich Makatia, who will set the scene before Joe Biden meets Prime Minister Boris Johnson later on today. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, just before we go to Bobby Friedman, whose uh, esteemed legal advice I will be uh, seeking counsel from, uh, let's have a look at what one of these insulate Britain types has to say for himself. My name is Harry. I'm an energy engineer um, and I'm here because insulating Britain will deliver the greatest reduction in CO2 emissions per pound invested. I'm here because it will take millions of people out of fuel poverty. And I'm here because it will create around a million proper, meaningful jobs. And I don't want to be here. And I'm sorry it's disturbed you. So there's three things wrong with Harry. One, he looks like a zombie. He looks as if somebody's fed him uh, with some kind of drug. Two, uh, he's probably not an energy engineer, is he? Probably making that up. And three, he says he doesn't want to be there. Well, that makes two of us, Harry. Hazza. We don't want you to be there either. So get lost, shove off and don't bother coming back. Thanks very much indeed. Let's talk to Bobby Friedman, barrister and political commentator. Bobby, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, when I think of something that can be solved by an illegal means, I think of Bobby Friedman. So what can we do? Because we keep hearing that the police have got the powers to, to arrest these people. And today, I'm happy to say that the police did their jobs and, and got them off the road pretty fast. But it seems to me that it's not good enough to keep arresting them and allowing them to go back and do it again tomorrow. Well, I think I think you're right. The starting point, there has to be that the police take action and it. It is welcome today, isn't it, that they finally pulled their fingers out and actually did something about it. Because what we saw last week was ludicrous, wasn't yeah. it? Because the police have the power to remove people. It is, it, look, you don't need a lawyer to tell you that, that it's a criminal offence to, to go and block the traffic on a motorway. Um, any any idiot knows that that's the case. Mm. But, but it seems that we do have some useful idiots in the police who decide that instead of actually arresting these people, clearing the roads... They're going to let them sit there for hours and hours on end, uh, creating massive disruption. And, and you know, the thing is, t- today was a very good example of, of why effective policing will, will stop this happening. Because ultimately, if the police get there within 10 minutes, don't get me wrong. Yes, it's, it, it, causes, it still causes inconvenience. Yes, it's still a danger to, to normal people. But if we clear them out of the way in 10 minutes, well... It minimises the protest. If you let them sit sit there for six hours, then it, it encourages them to come back and, and do it again. So we've got to start 
with having police who actually uh, enforce the law. Yes. I mean, is there also an issue about police bail? Because uh, I was listening to one expert this morning talking about how there is police bail, uh, but it's very rarely used in these kinds of cases. And it seems to me that what you need to do is if you are charging somebody with an offence, whether it be blocking a public highway or a breach of the peace or whatever, um, that you somehow put some conditions on their release, i.e. you can't go back to the M25. If you do, we're going to lock you up for a month. Yeah, and I think that's a very, a very fair point there, that it, all the time we're, when it comes to, to bail, conditions are imposed on, on bail requirements. And that's essentially saying to people, it's fine, we, we don't need to, to lock you up in prison uh, while you're waiting for a, for a trial on a, on, on a crime. But you, but you have to behave yourself. And I think it would be perfectly reasonable to, to impose these kinds of conditions uh, on protesters if, they, if they're going to if they're going to be released and go and commit another cr- crime Im- immediately then I think that's a, something that could be looked at I wonder whether we should be looking at whether uh, there could be injunctions obtained uh, against these people but but as I say the problem the problem with with all of this in a way is that actually it's still if you have someone uh, no no sensible person thinks that it's 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 a proportionate response to go and sit on the M25. Mm. Uh, regardless of what you think of the of whether we should be insulating homes, not not necessarily a bad idea, is it? But 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 it's who thinks you should go and sit on the M25? So I think it may be hard sometimes to just stop these people physically from going from going to do it. But it but it comes back to the fact that if they're if they're free to go and do it and then sit there for six hours. That gives them exactly what what they want. And so we've mishandled these protests from the start. And that's why it's encouraged them. If we pulled them off the motorway, if if I'd gone and sat on the motorway last week, I'd have been pulled off by the police in 30 30 seconds. uh, And that would have been the end of it. So we have encouraged these protests by allowing them to take place. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know whether insulating everybody's home is a good idea or not, but 29 million homes to be insulated, at what cost? I have no idea. I don't think they've given it much thought, these people. They might as well be asking for the letter M to be stricken from the English language or for all tortoises to have their shells removed. I mean, it means it means nothing, really, because it's not going to happen. And whenever I hear them speak, and I'm not ever going to let them on this show, by the way, until they promise me uh, and make some meaningful statement about never doing a demonstration on the M25 again, they keep saying, oh, we just want a meaningful statement from the government i don't even know what that even is so i'm not even sure they know what they want uh, in order to stop doing whatever they're doing and a bit like extinction rebellion i mean the idea that we are not made aware of climate change that we don't know that climate change is going on that we somehow need to be uh, made more aware of it is complete cobblers isn't it well it is because you only have to look at what is actually happening in new york uh, at the moment they'll be waking up there uh, around now and what is boris johnson doing he, he's over there trying to to get a uh, hundred billion dollars uh, of funding to, to to deal with climate change he, he got a billion yesterday from jeff bezos mm. so it's it's not like this government actually isn't taking climate change seriously we actually have a government that it, that, it, that is actually dealing with climate change and that's what's so galling about this mm. which is that if you have a proposal to make you know i'm not i'm not a uh, i i'm not an, an energy engineer um don't worry I, I neither don't... is neither is harry <laughs> so well exactly i'm in good company I mean, I mean if he's an energy engineer i'm the king of prussia <laughs> but so I, I don't know but it's but if you want to have a discussion about it the, the the political debate at the moment is perfectly amenable to sensible suggestions for how 
to 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 deal with climate change. This is government that, that's dealing with it with open arms. So the idea that you that you have to go and make this kind of protest just makes no political sense at all. And actually, it's politically stupid because let me tell you, the one people we should not instead of people we shouldn't engage with is insulate because if you encourage people to carry out protests and we all we all know the the, the horrific story of the lady who had a stroke was stuck in the motorway and, and might well have been left with quite minor um uh, consequences as a result but instead has been left with with, with life-changing injuries mm. as a result of it we've all seen these stories you you cannot allow that to be the way in which you 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 get to become part of of the public discourse and the dialogue about what policy should be. Sensible people putting forward sensible proposals to deal with climate change. We should be talking to them, listening to them. Not these people who want to go around ruining our lives uh, because they think they're entitled to go and sit on the motorway. Well, exactly. Because all you've got to do is look at what has happened over the course of the last few years, where Boris Johnson, inexplicably, in my view, has become a sort of Green Party prime minister, um, seemingly obsessed uh, not only with, uh, uh, with, with trying to get zero COVID, but now obsessed with making the planet greener and leading from the front and being the world leader uh, in global change in terms of what he's ordering people to do to, to, op- to operate their lives differently. Um, but the thing is that the more that he gives in to these people, the more they want. We've seen Greta Thunberg already saying that Britain uh, is a bit uh, dodgy when it comes to carbon accounting and that we basically make stuff up. She's accused Scotland of not being a very good country when it comes to um, dealing with climate change. And she demands that more should be done. And you're kind of wondering what on earth is going on. Well, particularly when you have China, who aren't even signed up to, to go into the climate change summit later this year. Um, so you look at you look at where, where the responsibility lies. We, we as a country are actually doing doing a huge amount. But as I say, it's, it's not it's not about saying that we can't have sensible conversations about all of this. But it's it's it, it's the arrogance, really. Mm. That's what that's what I find. It's the it's it's the the sense that your half baked opinion that you've come up with suddenly become so important that you have to impose it on the rest of the country. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like me, me saying that I, I should be allowed more slices of toast for breakfast. And because of that, I, I'm going to go and block every train in the country right. because I want people to talk about it. Right. It's nonsense and it's undemocratic. Yes. And does it need, therefore, Bobby, do you think, to be looked at in a different way? So as, for example, as we look at the police and crime bill, you know, we've got demonstrations which are we are told in some kind of peril um, and free speech is at risk because of the way the government wants to treat certain demonstrations. But I think there has to be a delineation point between walking down a street, making a political point with thousands of people or two people uh, and sitting somewhere for hours on end or days on end because it's a different thing, isn't it? It is a different thing. And I think you've, at the one end of the scale, you've got peaceful protest, which we want to encourage. And I think we have to be, should say, we have to be very careful about, about trying to categorise protest by, by what they're asking for, because you don't know which government's in power. And of course, five, ten years down the track, there could be a government that wants to that disagrees with you and wants to stop you putting forward your point of view. So I think we have to be really careful about about trying to make it based on based on what you're what you're protesting about. But you've got peaceful protest, which we allow in this country and we should encourage in this country. But that protest um, isn't peaceful. It isn't peaceful because we've already seen that it that it causes people uh, to be to be injured. Mm. Even if you're not physically hitting someone over the head with a stick, that doesn't mean that you're not hurting them. If you stop and go to a hospital, for example, yeah. that's one way of, of causing injury to someone. Um, and, 
and it, it, it's not proportionate and, it, and it's not reasonable. And I don't and I don't think as a, as a country we want to be encouraging. And that's what we, that was the worst part of this. As I say, we saw the police encouraging protesters last week to cause immense disproportionate uh, uh, disruption to all of our lives. Mm. And I think that is the problem at the moment. We're sort of suffering from overkill on demonstrations. You know, if you live in London, it seems to me that there seems to be almost every single week something going on. Uh, demonstrations with lots and lots of people involved in them, almost all of which cause disruption. And it's almost like it's a kind of an outbreak of, of campaigning that we're seeing, because I think people are encouraged that if they do it, they might get what they want. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. For me, I, I quite like protests on on the street in a way. I think that if it, if it's done in the right way, that's people being engaged in politics. And look, there'll be there'll be protests that we that you agree with, protests you don't you don't agree with. And of course, it is if if you're wanting to go down Park Lane on a weekend, of course, it's more annoying if it's someone you don't agree with blocking it than if it's someone you do. But 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 I think that as long as people do it in the right way, and it's an organised protest, you make your point. Then, then, then that's fine. It, it's, have, it's having wildcat protests that is the problem, and 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 it's it, it's also t- having a protest that is out of any proportion because this is this is, this is an idea that's just been uh, cooked up, uh, however recently, and, and suddenly uh, it's being said, well, we can do effectively what, whatever we want uh, in order to get that message across, and that that's not the right way to go about a protest. And of course. If you allow them, and again, it's, a, it's the same point applies, you never know what the next protest is going to be. So even for the insulate protesters, even if they believe in their cause, do they really think it would be right for someone else to go and uh, block the motorways for something else that they disagree with? Yeah. So it, it makes no sense. You can't, you can't allow um, the, the country to be brought to a standstill in this way. No, you really can't. Bobby, stay with us for a moment because I've got a couple of other questions for you. I'd like to see some changes made in the law in order to stop these idiots from doing what they've been doing. For the past week, five times they've basically broken the law and five times they've been allowed to go back and do it again. And it seems to me that something has to change. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're talking to Bobby Friedman, barrister, political commentator about the mess uh, that is being caused uh, on an almost daily basis now by these people from Insulate Britain, who seem to have got the idea that uh, it's a great idea to insulate every home in Britain. 29 million homes they want insulated. Uh, they don't say who's going to pay for it. They don't say why the government should do it. They don't know what they're going to insulate the, the, the homes with. There doesn't seem to be any plan at all. Uh, but we heard from Harry uh, in this hour, who is, of course, uh, claiming that he's an energy engineer, whatever that is, uh, and that he's demonstrating. I hope uh, whoever hires him and uses him as an energy engineer, if indeed he is, uh, gets rid of him as quickly as possible, because clearly uh, he is taking uh, the mickey out of everybody, including those people who pay him to do an actual job. Bobby, some people have said that uh, this behaviour, this persistent troublemaking behaviour, is akin to a kind of terrorism campaign. Now, that may be a little bit on, on the harsh side, but is there any chance that you could sort of uh, make an organisation like Insulate Britain a prescribed organisation, if you like, and make them um, a sort of an illegal band of people? Well, I, I think that would be very difficult to do. I mean, there are uh, whatever one thinks about about their protests. And obviously, you've heard my views before. I mean, there is a huge difference between them and a terrorist organisation. Yeah. Um, they are using sort of guerrilla tactics, but it's they 
they are obviously not going out of their way to cause uh, to deliberately seek to to uh, to to hurt people or kill people. Though, though, of course, as I say, some some of the impact of what they've done is to to have hurt people, mm. caused injury to to people. Um, I think we have to be to be careful about going too far um, in, in in dealing with them. And and as I say, I don't I don't think there should be. We we should be trying to stop people to be members of organisations that that have things to say about about how this country should be run. I've got no problem with them putting forward their their points of view. The problem I have is is the means by which they're trying to do it. But as I say, what we the the, pro, the fundamental issue we have is is that we you only have to look at the fact the police pulled them off the motorway today. Why were they not able to do that last week? I, I just sat there watching. You saw the saw individual drivers basically going up to the protesters and wanting to drag them off, and the police stopping those drivers from doing that. Those were, those were drivers who wanted to actually stop people from committing crimes. Mm. It's the wrong way round, and there's this muddle headedness when it comes to policing that the default seems to be to if if someone has a has a, a an in vogue protest to to seem to allow them to do whatever they want. In order, in order to do that, um, and then you could you compare it, for example, during the, the protests after the, the death of, of Sarah Everard, where the Mets, for reasons that were completely incomprehensible, came down on on the peaceful protesters like a ton of bricks. Yeah. So, I just think that there is something basically wrong with with how the police react to protests, and, and their antennae just just get it wrong pretty much every single time. Yeah. Well, that's the trouble, because it does appear as though somebody somewhere makes a decision on how these demonstrators are to be treated. And clearly, as you say, today and yesterday, to some extent, because they did a bit more uh, sort of hard uh, graft yesterday as well. Somebody's obviously told the police, right, yeah, now you can steam in and drag these people off the roads. It's the only way we can deal with them. Um, in the same way that they were told to be very standoffish and take the knee uh, when the BLM were, were protesting around central London in quite violent manner at times. Um, and in the same way that they steam in on any sort of anti-vax or anti-lockdown protest, uh, literally punching people on the ground. Yeah, I, I just don't. What I don't understand is what, what, why some protests end up getting this level effectively of, of protection. You know, as I say, if I, if I were to wander out onto the M25 this afternoon, uh, I would rightly be dragged off. Mm. Uh, you, but you, but you, we saw it last week where. There was simply no no desire to get people off, and the, the excuse is given. For example, saying, "Well, it was too dangerous to try and remove people from, from the motorway," mm. just doesn't make any sense at all. It's a absolutely right that obviously, if people are stood on the motorway, uh, as a responsible police force, you have to stop the tra ensure the traffic is stopped behind it, so that it's safe for your, your officers to go into the road. And once you do that, you pick the people up. And you get them off the side of the road. It's not difficult. Right. Uh, believe me, that they're well capable of doing that. So I, it just seems to, to, to be a series of misjudgments. But I think that goes right to the top of the, uh, of, of the police force. I think that's absolutely right. Bobby, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Bobby Friedman, their barrister, political commentator, uh, on the nonsense that has been going on for the past week or so, uh, thanks to these maniacs from Insulate Britain, who seem to think that the way forward to save the planet is to insulate everybody's house in Britain. If you just think about that for a second, and think about the size of Britain, and think about the size of the planet, and think about the size uh, of what is regarded, generally speaking, as the problem of causing climate change. I mean... Even if Britain could insulate 29 million homes, it would probably take years. It would probably take billions and billions of pounds to do. 
And what difference would it make exactly? We've got an energy crisis going on. Energy prices are going up. You're going to tell me that if you insulate loads and loads of people's homes, they will use less energy. That may well be. But how's that going to save the planet? Exactly. And how is stopping traffic on the M25 doing any good whatsoever? I want to have some ideas today as to what we do with these people. I would be quite happy uh, to lock some of these people up for a very long time. If they continue uh, to be recidivists, if they continue to ignore warnings that they should stop doing it, then surely they must be punished, mustn't they? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And here we are. It's a lovely sunny day out there. It's actually going to be 20 something today. So it's a rather pleasant September morn. Um, and here is Laura Dosworth. Laura, very good morning to you. Good morning. It's nice out there, isn't it? It's gorgeous. I love a day like this. I feel like it's a promise. It's yes. a promise of good things. When mm. the day starts like this in September, and today, by the way, is autumn equinox. Oh, is it? It is. 21st September. Okay. So it's the beginning of autumn. It just feels like the day should hold beautiful things. Yes. And it's always a nice time of the year for me. It would have been my father's birthday yesterday, September the 20th. Oh. He died a few years ago, uh, but he was a great man. One of the many inspirations to my um, to my way of being, you might say. Oh. Um, he sort of gave me the uh, the wherewithal to be questioning of almost everything and to treat mm. everybody the same and to basically go through life mm. trying not to do any harm to anyone. That is so lovely. And if we had a government like that, we'd be a lot better off, wouldn't we? Yes, yes. We don't, though, do we? No, yeah. we really don't. I was horrified when I saw the... Chris Whitty was going to overrule the JCVI. We talked about this last week. Mm. And then when they announced that Monday of this week was going to be the day they rolled out the vaccination programme for children, I just couldn't quite believe I was living in a country that would do that. Yeah, I know. But you know what? They're not all bad. I want to give a big shout out this morning to the marvellous MP Miriam Cates. Yes. I'm going to be thoroughly glowing about her because this morning there's a parliamentary debate in Westminster Hall about vaccinating um, teenagers. Now, she said something that is exactly what we were talking about last week, Mike. Mm. I think she was listening. I bet she was. Right. So here's her quote. Given the known and unknown risks of vaccinating healthy children and that 40 to 70 percent are estimated already to have antibodies, what plans do you have, that's Nadim Zahawi, to offer antibody testing to children so that parents can make an informed decision? Well, this is exactly what we were talking about yeah. last week. And we've had the mantra following the science dogmatically parroted to us, the British people, for 18 months and now the government is not following the science yes. because if a teenager has had the infection then they have long-lasting excellent protection from covid and then they would be completely unnecessarily exposed to the side effects and the rare but serious adverse effects which they can get from the yes. vaccine and that's why it was a difficult decision for the jcvi mm. because there are side effects and adverse effects so why are we not following the science anymore? So she's put that question to Nadeem Sahawi. He said he's going to write with mm. his reply and he needs to write that reply with the utmost urgency yes. because vaccines are being rolled out this week. And what I don't know, and I'm happy to take calls on this uh, later on in the, in the hour, because what I don't know uh, is whether or not parents are being asked if they wish for their children to be vaccinated. I've seen online, and I think you know about this, um, mm. a consent form, which not only has... Um, two or three pages of guff on it, which none of which is, is a fact, basically, sort of mm. telling children, oh, you know, this will make everybody safer. Uh, this will reduce your risk of getting COVID. This will reduce your risk of dying from COVID. But it also has a section where it says, if you do not consent, would you mind telling us why? Right? Mm -hmm. What is that about? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Is it because your parents are anti-vaxxers? I mean, you might as well ask that question. 
Yeah, so you know how I like to do my homework for your show. I've written a few pages of notes on this consent Excellent. form because I was not happy mm. when I saw it. Um, now, I'm no expert on consent forms for teenagers for vaccinations, but I suspect they don't normally look at them because no. it's normally the parent who gives consent. So it has been written in a child-centric child approach. We yes. were told it'd be child-centric. I would say it's a little beyond child-centric. It's quite juvenile mm. and it's very low on facts. And there's lots of silly little pictures, aren't there? There's lots of pictures. Um, I mean, that might be helpful for some 12-year-olds. I don't know, but it's, it's so low on facts. I don't understand how it's putting informed consent into the hands of teenagers or their parents now that refusal box that's interesting it says if you don't want to have the vaccine or you do not want your child to have the vaccine can you tell us why mm. and then underneath it says you don't have to tell us too right you don't have to tell them it's absolutely none of their business right. um whether you accept or decline a medical intervention is your business right. and it's no one else's business now this form is supposed to be returned to the appointment so whether you've given your consent or not it's returned at school so it's obvious that this is ethically problematic yes. for the reason for refusal to be written on a form that will be handed back at schools i don't want to cast any aspersion on schools teachers head teachers mm. or the medical people giving the vaccinations but it could obviously create an undue pressure or a discrimination on the child they shouldn't have to state their reason no. and just saying you don't have to tell us isn't enough that box just shouldn't be right. there at all well how about you don't have a form why should you have to give consent or not give consent i mean either uh, you agree to have the vaccine or you don't surely i mean you don't have to say i do not want it and put that down in writing do you well at the moment i do something similar with online forms for the vaccinations mm. vaccinations i normally just consent to um you know these are you do have to say whether you consent or not yeah. and it should be clear for the people administering the vaccine so that they know what's right. going on but it's normally an online form that the the child isn't isn't actually involved with now this form has clearly been through the behavioral insights yeah. people it's obvious in the design of it but not only that i know from an inside nhs comms person mm. who talks to me that everything goes through behavioral insights every press release every form all the public messaging around covid and there are some good reasons for that to make sure things are consistent right. um easily understood but it's also to make sure that um things are psychologically as effective as mm. possible so for instance um the first option is that you do give your consent before you give your refusal the first option is that the child gives their consent before the parent right. gives their consent it's all geared up so towards it's all you. done in a particular order it's all geared towards you saying yes, yes towards the child saying yes and of course it's got this refusal box right. on which which is something new um but also the wording of that's interesting to me because what they should really say is that you know while it is not your uh, it, while it is your right not to give a reason um, for not wanting this vaccination it would be very helpful to us if you were able to tell us why which would be a much better way of doing it than saying um, if you are refusing to take the vaccine please tell us why but then dot 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 you don't have to tell us but it should you know what I, mean? I, I do firmly believe it shouldn't be done on a piece of paper that's no. returned to a school no 
because people can then read that. So that information is inf important, but it should be done in a strictly confidential, anonymized way yes. that is not that doesn't imagine, go into the school. Yeah, I imagine they're not giving you an envelope to put it back into, are they? They're probably just returning it to the school receptionist or something. But the other thing is, is that for do me... Do you have a teenager? They are not going to be putting this in an yeah. envelope. If they do, they're opening it. It's going to exactly. be in the bottom of a school bag and then thrust out open yeah. towards a teacher. Oh, yeah. I mean, you'll find any number of letters from the school in the bottom of your son's bag, I'm sure, exactly. at any given time of the year from six months ago. But, you know, also, they're very careful at the chief medical officer's office to say that they are offering this vaccine to people rather than mm. they're, you know, asking people to get it. So therefore, in my view, if you're, and this is a legal kind of technicality for me, if you're offering something, then the person who wishes to accept that offer goes to you and says, I'm willing to accept your offer. You don't have to turn it down because that's immaterial. If you don't want it, you don't do anything, right? Yeah. Well, this is a behavioural science approach, I feel. I mean, they're trying to gather information, but they're not doing it in a way that's ethically of the best standard, I think. OK, so I've got another couple of um, big areas of concern with this consent form. It has a very interesting line on it. It says, you don't have to keep following the government's rules if you have been vaccinated, but they will help to keep you safe. Well, what does this mean? Which rules are they talking about? Well, it could be, for instance, masks or social distancing or bubbles, but it does this suggest that the teens who are vaccinated don't have to follow the rules, but the unvaccinated teens may have to? Mm. And then I thought, no, surely the government could not stoop that low to incentivise vaccination. Surely there would not be different rules for the vaccinated and the unvaccinated in schools, especially as we know that this vaccine doesn't even prevent transmission. That would be unscientific and discriminatory. And given that Chris Whitty said that the mental health of teenagers was one of the reasons to offer them vaccination, they couldn't possibly implement a system of discrimination you could even call it apartheid like that which would actually destroy mental health for teenagers but that line's definitely caused me some alarm mm, i think so because the whole situation is alarmist really and i was interested to know and i think since the last time you and i spoke um i heard a headmaster uh, from one of the headmaster unions on jo julia's show who said look mm. this is not for the schools like the testing system was whereby you get a load of boxes of tests that arrive and I know from what they did in my son's school that they basically handed the test out, you know, in classrooms and said, right, here's a box of tests to take home. We want you to do two a week, blah, blah, blah. For those of you who are doing them, you know, my son wasn't doing them, um, so he didn't take a box test. But as far as the schools are concerned, they're not going to administer the vaccine. So all they're saying is that if they, if the NHS wants to do the vaccinations in the school, they will give them a space in which to do it. And that's all their involvement will be. So I think a lot of the schools have got cold feet now and they're kind mm -hmm. of going we don't really want to be involved in this. And I think that's mm. right, because if you want to vaccinate children, why not ask them to go to a vaccination centre? Why do you want to do it in the school? Yeah, that would make a lot more sense. And one argument could be because it's to minimise disruption to schooling. On the other hand, we know that some schools are also saying don't come in the next day if you suffer side effects. It's kind of a crazy way of thinking about it, really. Have the vaccine to minimise disruption to schools, but you might feel so ill the next day you don't want to come in. Right. Um, the, the thing is, they can try to separate themselves from it, but those children are still on school premises. If they feel ill later, for instance, it will still be the school who's looking after them. 
um, we know that there might be school assemblies or life skills classes on vaccination. The school can't really simply offer itself as a venue and have no other involvement. Right. That's just not realistic. No, because but, they have to disrupt the school day, presumably, in order to get people into that particular place to get the vaccination done. There's all the queuing, and if they're given a proper decent discussion, which would arrive at some form of informed consent such as it is that's going to take time what 15 minutes it's going to be enormously disruptive actually talking about disruption mm. canada is the um first country i think that's rolled out the vaccination to all of its school children it's not going very well there they're closing schools in some provinces as well as reintroducing face masks and testing so i'm not i'm not confident about how that's even going to work out here this this winter, we've already been told um, that it's an adjunct to other actions. Mm. You know, vaccinating teenagers isn't a magical solution anyway, because we know it doesn't stop infection or transmission. If you want to stop disruption to schooling, stop disrupting it. Simply stop <laughs> asymptomatic. Stop disrupt. But it's of course it's a policy decision. But stop asymptomatic testing. Yes. Now, so many experts with a wealth of evidence-based medicine and public health have been ignored mm. throughout this. And if we just listened to them, if we, if, if government had just listened to them earlier, so many of these problems could have been avoided. Carl Hennehan um, was answering MPs' questions in the House of Commons back in September yeah, I 2020. Yeah, he said that if you randomly go into schools and mass test, you may as well shut the schools down right now. Yeah. He'd never seen anything like it in all his years as a GP or an evidence-based mm. medicine practitioner. And he recommended that asymptomatic testing not go ahead. But we know what happened after that. The UK government did roll out asymptomatic yeah. testing. Education was damaged. And it's probably partly why we're in the mental health crisis we're in now for teenagers. Yes. And as far as I understand it, they're still doing it. They're still testing in schools until, as far as I'm aware, at the end of this month when they're going to review it. But have you also noticed something else creeping in? And this mm. is coming from Mark Drakeford's uh, announcement last week that they were going to have vaccine passports, right? He's now saying things like, Oh, yes, well, we know that it's not on in and of itself um, a measure that will protect you, but along with all the other measures, it will be good. And that was when he was referring to going back to wearing face masks and face coverings, as they like to call them in Wales, because he's going, well, it might not be the case that this will stop you getting COVID, but it will help. So if you do this along with all these other things that you can do, then you'll be safer. And so they're, all, they're sort of shifting it all very subtly into... We're not asking you to wear a face mask because it stops you getting COVID because you can make an argument against that. They're saying do it because it's part of a kind of, you know, collection of things that you can do. A collection of useless, yeah. unevidence-based right. things. Right. Brilliant. I know. What's next? Wear chicken suits. That yeah. will work. Well, exactly I... right. And they also haven't really defined yet what an event size is, which is, is going to require a vaccine passport. Nobody really knows the answer. Anything over 10,000 if it's outside, but inside, we don't know. Well, it's zero for me because I won't go to them. No. I find it really appalling that there'll be people who are left outside. Yeah. I just think it's um, it's a horrendous state of affairs for a modern democratic society in 2021 to say that, you know, if you don't have this intervention that, that we know isn't a magic bullet and won't stop infection, mm. you can't come in. Right. We know that's going to mainly affect certain groups of people who will be outside. So I'd rather stand outside with them. Mm.
Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Laura Dodsworth is here. She's the author, of course, of State of Fear, uh, one of the great books of the, the pandemic, you might say. Um, we'll be talking some more coming up very shortly. But if you've got any information that we can use, by all means, do let us have it. You can tweet us at Talk Radio at IROMG. What's going on in your school? What's going on with your children? Are they being offered a vaccination or is it all going on sort of in the background? 
Uh, the French have done a bit better than us there with nuclear, and they still get a lot of their power from nuclear. So what are we doing? We're relying on imports of gas. We're relying on interconnectors from Europe. Now, we've just had this wonderful spat with France, so I don't think France is terribly keen on helping us out if we've got an energy shortage. Uh, what we also did a couple of years ago was to close down our main gas storage, which was uh, an installation called Rough up, yes. up, up uh, in, in Yorkshire, mm. so that we have very, very low gas stocks in this country compared to Germany or Holland or other European countries. We've really allowed ourselves to get in a complete bind, and we have said, well, don't worry, because we've got lots and lots of wind power. We're going to be the wind power capital of the world which is great when the wind blows. But when the wind doesn't blow, which is what we've just seen, we're completely stuffed. Now, it may be in 20 years, 30 years' time, we'll have massive battery storage and we'll be able to pile up you know, a huge amount of uh, energy for the winter uh, from the wind blowing in the summer or, or to take that approach. But at the moment, we can't store anything like the sort of power we would need to run London for half an hour, never right. mind for three weeks. So we're stuffed. Yes. It seems extraordinary, doesn't it, that we as a small island uh, off the coast of continental Europe in the middle of the North Sea isn't windy enough. I mean, I find that very hard to believe. Surely maybe we just have the wind turbines in the wrong places. Well, no, it, it, it is true, actually, that we do have, as they like to say, the best wind resources in Europe. Mm. Um, so we've got great places in the North Sea and Scotland are great places uh, for wind normally. But you can't control the weather. And sometimes the wind blows. Sometimes the wind doesn't blow. And what we've left ourselves without is resilience. Mm. We don't have anywhere else to turn. There's nowhere else to go to. I mean, thank God the Norwegians, I think, are still supplying us with plenty of gas. But there's huge demand in Asia. So a lot of the places we said, well, we can get it from here, we can get it from there, no problem, get it from the Middle East. Uh, meantime, Russia, of course, you've got Putin, who's turning the screws uh, on Europe. Mm. So they're short of gas. They're not going to... Uh, uh, to help us out. Uh, and we, we've really left ourselves without anywhere to turn. Yes. Um, what we should have been doing, you know, we've, whenever you propose new energy infrastructure, you know, you, you want to build a nuclear power station, there are the protesters. You want to get shale gas out of the ground. We've got great shale gas resources in this country. We just don't dig them out. Um, and uh, you, you suggest we should start getting shale gas, and immediately you've got protesters blocking roads. I like what you said about the... Uh, Extinction Rebellion guys on the M25, by the way. I agree with you absolutely. Mm. But basically, we have to have energy supplies. Um, and that means, I think, at the moment, it has to be gas. We need to have sources of gas. We need to have storage of gas. We need to have enough gas. Gas is a great fuel. It's, it's clean. It only produces half the CO2 of the equivalent energy value of coal. It would be a great transitional fuel if we're going to net zero, and that's a whole other debate, but if we are going to net zero, then gas is a great intermediate bridge, as it were, from, from coal, which produces a lot of CO2, to 2050 when we're not going to have any CO2, uh, but gas will be a great thing to have in the meantime. The trouble is we haven't thought about where we're getting the gas from, and we haven't got enough reserves. No. And is it also a fact, uh, Roger, would you say, that some of the private big companies, and maybe even some of the small companies, have not really invested in their own infrastructure in this country, so that we haven't got a very good kind of, um, you know, administrative grid, if you like, of all of these companies, because they've always just assumed they'll go get it from the cheapest place. 
Uh, well, I think there's a lot of that in it, although certainly you can't blame the newer, smaller energy companies. I mean, they're not in the business of digging out gas or, mm. or prospecting for it. What you can say is that uh, now, sorry, I'm losing my facts here, but it was one of the big power companies that made the decision to close the uh, the rough gas storage. Yes, I think uh, it was Centrica, wasn't it? Centrica, they may, it may well have been. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, uh, I mean, that was terribly short-sighted. But mm. really, it comes back to the government's door because the government should have an overall watching brief on this and should make sure that we do have the facilities, the resilience in place to cope with the unexpected. And there's an awful lot of unexpected. You know, there are interconnectors closing down. There was a fire on one of the interconnectors. Uh, all sorts of things can go wrong. There's suddenly a rush of demand uh, in Asia, which we didn't anticipate. Uh, we don't know when these things are going to happen, but we must have some backup so we can deal with them. And frankly, we just don't have it. And strangely, we now, uh, as, as, as we have many, many campaigns now to reduce the CO2 uh, in Britain, we now have a shortage of CO2, rather ironically, uh, which apparently is going to affect everything from hospitals to uh, food manufacturing uh, to all sorts of, uh, you know, Christmas turkey farms yeah, and all the rest yeah. of it. Um, but we've got this now massive, ridiculous situation where the government is talking about um, subsidising American companies to sell us a CO2 and also subsidising gas companies and electric companies because they fear that they're not making enough money? Uh, well, they, they've got themselves into a complete bind because they've allowed the supply situation to get so bad. Obviously, prices have gone up. I mean, that's, the, that's basic economics. You yeah. have a, a severe shortage and suddenly prices go through the roof. That is bound to happen. And to an extent, it should be temporary, provided that we can... We can actually solve this solution of having enough mm. but it needs a rethink we need more nuclear in this country we need more gas in this country we need gas storage and we need in my view and i've argued for it for years we need shale gas because we've got it you know the, the industrial revolution in britain in the 19th century was based on coal and britain was blessed with lots and lots of coal we're sitting here now with a country where we've got lots and lots of gas, but we're saying, well, we don't like gas very much, so we're not going to get it out. Well, mm. now we see what happens when we don't get the gas that we need. Yeah. And what's your thinking, Roger, about what happens over the course of the next couple of weeks? I mean, Boris Johnson said yesterday in the US that he's hoping the market will calm down. But it's not just the market that needs to calm down. It seems to me that they need to look at what's gone wrong and try and make it preventable. Well, absolutely. And it's really scary the way that Boris Johnson and... Uh, other government ministers are saying, look, don't worry, it's going to be all right. The lights won't go out. Uh, you know, we, we need more than these bland assurances. We need a plan. We need a real rethink of where we're going to get stuff from. I mean, I think in the short term, in terms of, of a few weeks, they have to do whatever they have to do. And, and, and if that means subsidies from the taxpayer, there's no substitute. Mm. Otherwise, we'll go hungry and there'll be empty shelves and there'll be lights out. So they have to do those things. But, but that's only a short-term fix. It's a sticking plaster. Mm. What they've got to do is think seriously about actually how we power a modern economy in a resilient and reliable way uh, through to whatever new plan they have. I mean, I'd be happy to come and talk to you about about net zero, because I think it's absolute madness yes. and economically destructive. Uh, but that, if you like, is a broader debate. But if we are going there, 
we've got to talk about how we get there without allowing the economy to collapse in the meantime. Yes, absolutely right. Very well said. Roger, thank you very much indeed. Uh, we like to hear common sense on this radio show, and Roger has certainly provided us with plenty of that. Former UKIP Energy spokesman, uh, former MEP for the East Midlands, of course, as well. We will talk to Roger some more uh, coming up in the future, because I think he does have uh, the right attitude. It is nonsensical, is it not, to have all the coal that we have in this country and not use any of it. It is ridiculous to say uh, that we're going to be reliant upon renewable energy that comes from wind farms, that comes from the sea, that comes from all sorts of green methods which don't actually work when the chips are down. If it's not windy enough, wind power isn't any good. That should tell you something. You should have something in reserve. You should have more gas storage capabilities. You should have more energy variations. You should have more ways of actually bringing energy into the country without actually having to buy it from overseas. For heaven's sake, it's not difficult, is it? 0344 499 1000. We're going to take some calls coming up. How about this from Adrian in Daventry? He says, I'm going to start a new protest action group. I'm going to call it Double Glaze Britain. Who's with me? I think that's a good one. Why not? Why not call for giving everybody a garden? Give everyone a garden. Let them live outside. Who needs a house? Don't even bother. Just buy everybody a sleeping bag. I mean, you might as well have any number of ridiculous campaigns you want to lie down on the road about. Because these people, I kid you not, they look like zombies, they act like zombies. I'm beginning to think they are actual zombies. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So we've spoken a lot over the past few months about the difficulties people have had getting to see a GP, the difficulty uh, of getting a face-to-face consultation, how hard it is to get into various hospitals, how some hospitals have become very quiet over time uh, as the COVID numbers have gone down. Difficult to now get a picture of exactly what is going on, but let's talk to Professor David Taylor, pharmaceutical scientist at UCL. Uh, He's also uh, the author of a report which is suggesting uh, that there will be, uh, as we kind of look further into the future, all sorts of difficulties coming up. 10,000 Britons may die of cancer due to the COVID pandemic and delays fueled by dropping emergency referrals from GPs. Professor David, a very good afternoon to you. Hi, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for, for talking to us. This has been a sort of recurrent uh, theme for us on this show because an awful lot of people have been in touch with us for the past several months talking about why uh, and how difficult it is to get to see a GP. And a lot of them are sort of baffled as to why, considering that social distancing has become a thing of the past in most other businesses, why doctors are still operating as if COVID is very much still out there. Well, I guess it is out there, Mike. Um, and there's good reason for reasonable caution. The NHS hasn't done that badly. And of course, as you were saying earlier on, people are questioning its efficiency. It's worth remembering we spend about half the proportion of GDP or two thirds of the proportion of GDP on health than the Americans do. So perhaps it's something to do with the level of funding because it's tax funded. But either way, there's there's risk there. Obviously, the COVID epidemic, pandemic, whatever you like to say, cause big problems, and it's caused them everywhere, not just in the UK. That did delay cancer treatment, although lots of other treatment was delayed as well. People suffering pain from hip, hip bad hips and waiting year, two years sometimes, which is extraordinarily bad. In some ways, cancer services have been protected. But what we've got now is both the issue of making sure that any harm done is minimised and at the same time taking up the great opportunities that if we look forward, 
if we get better early diagnosis, if people aren't frightened of being tested, if they come forward, if they can access access good testing and care through their GPs, through hospitals, and if we've got access to the best treatments, whether they're older ones or new ones as they become available, we can further reduce the load of cancer, which we know has changed the lives of so many people in Britain. About 40% of people in Britain say their lives have been changed for the worse because of cancer. Right. Well, your study says, I think, that 40,000 late diagnoses happened as a result um, of a drop in emergency referrals from GPs. So, I mean, I don't know whether that's changed now or whether it's been fixed or do you believe it's still going on? I don't think that. I think that's an overall figure. We find cancer in lots of ways. Some is emergency referral from GPs. Some is routine care. And some, of course, is an emergency admission when you've got late-stage symptoms. The the 40,000 figure came from another study published in a journal called Lancet Oncology. Nobody really knows the overall burden. We know there was a big hit. We know now we've got both the task and the opportunity of doing better. I think that's the thing to emphasise. And there is evidence that NHS services in emergency referrals recovered. What I want to see is asking some questions about that. At the moment, we use a 3% threshold. Um, That means to say that you only get referred for extra testing if the tests the GPs have been given to use by NICE and by experts indicate there's about a 3% of risk of there being a cancer. We think that that threshold could be reduced. If you've got a one in fifty percent, uh, one in fifty chance of having a cancer, I guess you'd like to be worked up personally. Mm. I think in the states, for example, most people would be very anxious to to get checked. I think we can improve things there. There's other sorts of screening and testing. For example, in lung cancer, again, if we take the example of the states, there's something called the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force which is recommended that all ex-smokers and smokers with a significant record of smoking age between 50 and 80 have something called low-dose CT scanning, which can pick up early-stage eminently treatable lung cancers. We've been looking at that for ages and just haven't got any policy yet. I think that's something that needs attention from politicians, from people like you, Mike. Yes, I mean, I think the problem overall with the NHS is that bits of it work quite well, but lots of it doesn't. I mean, I've got a letter in front of me here uh, from a a listener uh, called Philip. I won't give his last name. He didn't say whether I could give that out. But he's got a friend who was waiting for knee surgery, right, replacement knee surgery on his right leg in Essex at the King George Hospital. He was told the waiting list was going to be three years minimum. And he was so worried about that that he thought he might try and see what he could do privately. He went to the same orthopaedic consultant, said, how much would it cost to pay for a private operation and how long would it be to wait? The answer was £16,000 and we can do it in three days. So there's, there's, if you don't ration by price the ability to pay, the historical trend has been you ration by waiting time. We, because we fund the NHS by taxation, and we do that because it's so important, our survey work has shown that 80% of people are very firm on wanting a tax-funded NHS, which is universally available. The danger is, if we don't fund it well enough, 
then we have long waiting times. There's a temptation to say, oh, they must be inefficient. But there's absolutely no evidence of that. The evidence is its capacity, whether it's diagnosis, whether it's number of surgeons, that sort of thing. Now, obviously, we've got to guard against efficiency, inefficiency and jobs worth people. Mm. You meet them everywhere. I'm sure you meet them in even in talk radio. Well, I mean, um, we're a very slim and, and, and efficient organisation here at, uh, at talk radio. I'm not sure that you could say the same about other media companies, though, I'm sure. I'm sure that's right. I'm sure it's true of universities. I'm sure it's true. I've worked in the pharmaceutical industry. It's true everywhere that you get some people that are taking things for a ride, but most people everywhere try hard. And it's very important not to inappropriately blame GPs, just as in the past, some doctors have inappropriately blamed patients for not turning up. Yes. We shouldn't blame each other. We should just try and make things better. Yes, I think that's right. But I think the trouble with the NHS is that there are sections of it which have got really, really top-heavy, I think, over the last 20 years in terms of you know management consultant types, people getting paid six-figure salaries. And there was one the other day, a woman who's running some kind of uh, uh, diversity department who's making £35,000 more a year than the head of NHS England. You know, and people making sort of 250000 a year and that kind of thing could pay for 11 nurses. And I know it's easy for newspapers to write those kinds of stories, but it's true. Um, and for people who are trying to access care... You know, to be told that you can't come and see a doctor or to be told that when you get to the doctor's surgery, you have to wait outside and somebody will come and see you. You know, there's no real excuse for that now, is there? Don't take me as a great expert on this, Mike, but the last figure I saw was something like 6% of NHS costs go on management. The figures in the US, if we take that as an example, are considerably higher. And I think they compare pretty well across Europe. So, yes, you will be right that bad things happen. And getting back to your example of somebody waiting for knee surgery, I think that's shocking. I think there are, I've even heard in Northern Ireland of people being told they'd have to wait five years for yes. a, a hip replacement. That's shocking. Mm. What I think we've got to be very careful of is thinking we know, oh, that's because of fat tap cats at the top. Yes. Like pretending we can solve all our problems if we only tax the rich. We've all got to contribute. And if we want good public services, the truth is we all have to pay. Yes, I get that. But equally, um, it doesn't appear that throwing more money at it necessarily makes it any more efficient either, because we're currently about to be taxed one and a half or 1.25 percent more on our national insurance. For some people, that'll turn out to be 2.5 percent. What would you say that money should be given to? Which part of the service should it be given to? I mean, do you, do you want to hire more doctors? Do you want to hire more nurses, train more doctors? What would you do with it? Well, remember, that all came from the debate about social care. Right when Labour set up the NHS, there was a division between social care, which itself goes back to the old poor law in the 19th century, mm. the sort of care you get in your own home, and medical care, which was free in the poor law, free in the NHS. What we've done over the last 70 years is tend to dump a lot of things that are in the borderline between home nursing and home support. We've dumped them in social care and we said you've got to pay. That wasn't free. You're taxed to poverty levels. The big political debate about sorting that out, and you remember when Boris came in, he said he'd got a plan. So in the long term, that 1.25%, which of course is really 2.5% because it's half from you and half from your employer, 
um, is scheduled most of it to go to improving social care. Injustices like people getting dementia, living for a long time with very severe disability, not being called a disease and losing their houses and things because of it. At least Boris has taken action to put a cap on that or you can debate how much time yes. money you should spend yourself. In the short term, what that money's got to go to is one way or another, cutting the waiting list for surgery right. and the NHS. The issue is in the longer term, will it really be transferred to social care or will we be looking for another solution for that down the road? Well, I suspect all of the above will apply because I don't think that the money... Uh, will make any difference whatsoever to the waiting times. And I don't think, from what the analysis that I've seen so far has suggested, that the social care cap will make much difference anyway, because um, it really just sort of puts another little level of uh, of protection on very... Why, very why do you think people. that, Mike? Well, because the amount... When, when Blair increased, put his foot over Gordon Brown's, much to Gordon Brown's rage, mm. uh, on the accelerator of NHS funding between 2000 and 2010... The waiting times did fall. The money did make a difference. There is evidence there. So why do you think it doesn't? Because I don't think that the NHS in nowadays terms is anywhere near as efficient as it was, funnily enough, because I think that um, it's getting so much more money than it got then, and yet it's become worse. So you have to explain that somehow by, and the only reasonable means I can have of explaining it is that it doesn't use the money as well as it used to. And we've got well, apparently we've got doctors again, we've got doctors who leave the business because they want to do uh, more locum work. We've got nurses who leave the business because they can't stand working in there anymore. You know, so you've got a recruitment crisis. You haven't got enough people, and I don't know how you're going to get so many more I people. Do, in. I'm not sure the figures actually so so that might. The NHS doesn't take that much compared with big systems elsewhere of the GDP. It takes about seven and a half percent of GDP up to the time the pandemic struck. Now, that was actually falling during that period between 2010, 2018. The percentage of our national wealth going on the health service as our, as our wealth increased was falling slightly. Yes, but, now, it's, more actual, struck, but it's more actual money, though, isn't it? It's, well, the, you'd have to adjust for inflation. It is well, it more is. money. It's more money. It's slow growth. And as a proportion of all our money, it fell. Then you got the mayhem of the pandemic. And everywhere people have big problems. What we've got to do now, whatever the past is, is to look for the most efficient solutions. That I totally agree. Mm. But I wouldn't think that any doctor in the NHS is w worse at being efficient than I am. I think we've all got problems and challenges with that. Um, the thing to do is work together. Are you saying you want an alternative to the NHS, something pri privately funded or something like this? Well, or is there something in between that you'd like? Well, I think, I think it doesn't work for everybody. Therefore, I think it needs to be changed. And rather than every single year arriving at the same place, which is, you know, the headlines in, in the papers that say there's another winter crisis in the NHS, which seems to happen every single year because nothing seems to ever change in the way that it's run. Um, I would suggest that there are some tweaks made to it, for example. Um, a lot of doctors say they, they get a lot of time wasters coming to see them in surgeries who shouldn't really come there. So I would suggest you might charge them money to have an, an appointment, uh, which could be refundable uh, at certain points or to certain people. You wouldn't want to exclude certain people. But, you know, I just think the system needs tweaking. 
um, so that it works better. Because, I mean, I don't think you can doubt or disagree with me when I say that an awful lot of it doesn't work very well. I certainly agree with you when we say we can make things better. Some people, I've talked to people in the, the current government, some people, of course, think that the national insurance scheme could be extended so that you had a particular tax for health and social care, and that would be just for health and social care. You'd take it out of the other tax pot. Mm. That's one thing people are looking at. I'd agree that for people like you and me, say with this lung cancer screening thing, which is so important, we could save lives, although there are downsides as well, if we were checking smokers for, for lung cancer. It's only two or 300 quid for a CT scan. You and I could look at that and think, well, if we've been smokers, maybe we should pay for it. The trouble is the evidence is those most at risk almost like vaccine hesitancy, those most least able to look after themselves are often the ones who'd be least willing to pay. So it's balancing that out in terms of getting good community outcomes, but certainly you and I might want the freedom to top up our care. I totally agree. I mean, I already do that anyway, and most people probably do, and many more people are going private for certain things because they simply aren't willing to wait the length of time that they are being asked to wait uh, because they're in so much discomfort. So I think we're already getting a kind of two-tier system for those who can afford to use private health. So that should be helping the NHS in a way because it should be reducing the numbers of people reliant upon it. I think that's true, provided it doesn't take the shortage of staff. One of our scandals is, of course, over the last few decades, one way or another, we had we used to rely on importing doctors from over the world and nurses. Mm. We haven't trained enough staff. Now, if you take cancer, one of the important things, as you know, radiography, radiotherapy, taking pictures of people to see cancers, beaming in x-rays and similar streams of uh, photons to to treat people mm. is very important. But we've got 25% of the jobs unfilled. Thousands of people need in training. One way or another, despite all the bureaucracies, despite all the planning, it hasn't worked very well in making sure we've got the people in place. Yes. And I mean, I've lived in America. I lived there for 10 years. My first uh, the child was born there. So I got some knowledge of the American system. And I know it's not perfect. A lot of people will tell you that many people do not get the cover that they need. But my, my elderly mother still lives there. Um, and she gets very good um, care in various different ways, from hospitals to doctors to everything else, with a very small amount of insurance that she pays. Um, and, ever she, and, and on any given time when she was put into a hospital for whatever reason and given a bill for $25,000 because she didn't have the money, they don't chase her for it. So it's not quite as bad over there as everybody makes out. And I think we could probably have some form of, of you know, mixed system which might help everybody here. Whenever I'm in America, I enjoy it so much. I find it difficult to disapprove it. On paper... <laughs> There are the sections of the population who don't get good care. If you're very rich in America, there's a danger of being over-treated. But there are quite a lot of people who get really world-class care in America. So we, what we need is a pragmatic approach which looks at the advantages of all systems and asks, what are we trying to do? Are we, are we, how much are we trying to care for the weakest, the least able? How much are we trying to make sure we've got a system which benefits the strongest, the richest? How much are we looking for something in the middle 
which gives a pretty good deal for all. Yes. Well, listen, I think this is the start of a beautiful friendship day because I think there's a lot more for us to talk about at some point or other going forward. So let's do that uh, and continue to seek uh, uh, solutions to problems because I think yeah, you're the kind of man that we can do that with. Professor David Taylor, uh, pharmaceutical scientist at UCL. (laughs) 